Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is your host, Abby Martin. This is the audio of our show. You can watch the episodes on our YouTube channel or at theempirefiles.tv. We live in a world of overabundance, yet the gap between the rich and the poor continues to dramatically deepen. The 26 richest people on the planet now hold the same wealth as the 3.8 billion poorest. 50% of the population. Occupy Wall Street popularized the term the 1%, the notion of a nebulous ruling elite that holds a wildly disproportionate concentration of wealth and power at humanity's expense. But those who sit at the top of the pyramid, the financial behemoths running this oppressive and violent economic order, have largely operated in the shadows until now. The new book Giants answers in great detail the commonly asked but little-known question, who really pulls the strings? Through exhaustive research, sociologist Peter Phillips outlines the top $17 trillion investment management firms, which control over $40 trillion in wealth, and exposes the few hundred people who decide the investment of global capital. Peter Phillips is a professor of political sociology at Sonoma State University and the former director of Project Censored. While in the Bay Area, I sat down with Peter to learn more about those who hold the reins of empire and capitalist hegemony. Let's get started by talking about the state of the world today as a result of our global economic system. Can you give us a quick assessment on the current state of human civilization? Well, 80% of the people live on less than $10 a day. That's all the people in the world. So there's only 20% that we would call the middle class so to speak, and then about 1% who are the transnational capitalist class. Those are the really, really rich people. So for the bottom 80%, $10 a day is not very much, and half of those, half the people in the world live on less than than $2.50 a day. And the bottom third, over a billion, um, live on $1.25 a day. So that gross inequality is dramatic. In fact, um, you know, we have seven, eight hundred million people that are nutrition malnourished, and 30,000 of them die every day from starvation or malnutrition. So we have an ongoing slaughter of people um, who aren't, and there's more than enough food in the world to feed everybody. So, I mean, a third of the food in the world is wasted, but it's not profitable for capitalism to try to sell them that food, and it's not profitable to give it to them, so they, they won't do it. So they're just seen as surplus people and they're allowed to die. So that I consider you know, a major humanitarian crisis in the world today. That faced with our global economic environmental system, capitalism is not doing us good. But Peter, the proponents of global capitalism have told us that that's been decided already. We've tried other systems, that capitalism is the best for humanity. What's your response to that? Well. <clears throat> They, they argue that it's going to trickle down and that they can continue to grow capital. And that's part of the problem with capitalism because you have this concentration of, of money, of capital, that continues to, to need to grow and expand because they want a return on it. And so when I write about the giants, the giants are these gi- transnational investment companies with over a trillion dollars worth of assets that they're man- managing. And a, tr- and a trillion is, is a lot. I mean, that's a thousand billions. So when we talk about money in the world, free-flowing money, they've they've got the core of it for sure. 
and where they invest, um, investing in the 100 big companies that are putting out CO2, 70% of the CO2 in the world is coming from 100 companies. So, I mean, it's massive negative impacts on the world, the environment, and people are getting poorer and thousands are dying every day. Mm -hmm. It's hard to think that that would be the best that we have it's possible. Not, it's, there's there's got to be better way. I mean, we have resources in the world. We could take care of everybody. Um, how we do that is not to make people richer or concentrate wealth more, but to share it better and uh, to make sure that there's, you know, all the resources of the world are trickle down or are there's a river down a flow of, of money so that people can have an adequate living, they can feed their children, they can engage in, in productive activities. And your book, Giants, largely focuses on the profiles of the power elite, which you call the activist core of what's called the transnational capitalist class. Explain this concept. Well, we, the, the Occupy movement gave us the concept of the 99 versus the 1%. And uh, so we know that the 1% of the world, they, eight of them have half the wealth in the world. And the top 1%, I mean, they're, they're controlling, you know, 90% of, of the wealth in the world. So that is very concentrated. So these giant transnational investment companies, the ones who represent million, 36 million millionaires, two to 3,000 billionaires, uh, are <clears throat> manage their money for them and invest it in places where they want to get a return. So there are 17 of these trillion dollar investment giants. They collectively control in 2017, $41 trillion worth of wealth. So it's just a massive concentration of, of, of wealth. And there's only 199 people that are on the boards of directors of those companies. So we have less than 200 people who are deciding the investment policies for 50, it's 50 trillion this year, $50 trillion worth of wealth in the world. And a lot of those decisions aren't, aren't favorable to most, to most people or, and, and it's favorable to them. So they're trying to get, they're trying to get a return. That's one of the problems with capital and capitalism is that it needs to continue to grow. So the problem with this kind of capital concentration is they run out of places to invest it with good returns. But even, even then, they still have more capital and they, they've got good places to do it. So part of global, the, the neoliberal economic policies is to buy up the world, literally privatize the world, so that freeways, highways are, are bought up, the water resources, resources in the world, the universities and, and cities, I mean, everything it becomes privatized. And so the public domain is bought up. That's another way of, of trying to get a return on, on investment. And even that, there's still more money than there's good place to invest. So we've reached a level now of permanent war. They're all invested in each other. So we're a cluster of interconnected capital with very similar investments, all watching each other. And, you know, with, and the number of people controlling that could be, um, you know, fit in a small uh, mid-sized university auditorium and have cocktails together. They all know each other and know of each other. Most of them know each other personally and they all go to Davos together and they hang out. Let's go back to the players here and let's, let's call out some of these institutions here because we hear about billionaires like Jeff Bezos, right? Bill Gates, we hear these names often. Well, Bezos is yeah. the richest man in the world mm -hmm. with 160 billion. 
I think he lost six billion last week, which is kind of ha ha. <laughs> but uh, you know, he's he's the richest person in the world. But he's just one big tree in a forest. So he, in fact, we didn't even list him in the book as part of the global power elite because the global power elite, there's a sociology of who's in the forest. These people are interacting together. They're like redwood trees. All their roots are interconnected. And Bezos is just one big tree. But the rest of them are making the policy decisions through a variety of institutions um, and the con direct control of the investment money, the money they're investing, that impact the entire world, that impact us all. How did we get here? Because a hundred years ago, we had capitalist powers wiring over, you know, World War One. We saw a, a lot that had merged fighting. That's basically why the war happened. World War Two, obviously, the U.S. kind of took hold in the world with the dropping of nuclear bombs and instated its hegemony, and now has these collaborators. But how did global capitalism come to this point from from there a hundred years ago to where it is today? The short version, essentially, is we globalized. Mm -hmm. So we developed, and it has been developing for a while, people um, at, a at a transnational level who are in corporations. I mean, the largest 200 uh, economic entities in, in the world, 150 of them are corporations. Mm -hmm. So these corporations are massive, bigger than countries, uh, supersede countries in many cases, and then use the WTO rules and the IMF rules and that to loan countries money and then obligate them to invest in, and do products, things that will benefit capital and capitalism. So these so companies are, are totally in, in charge of the world. I mean, that, that's where we're at. Mm -hmm. And they're, they operate everywhere. So Amazon's everywhere. I mean, and they just reached a trillion dollars worth of wealth in Amazon. Um, and a part of that is m massive investments by the investment giants. And so 56% of Amazon's stock is held by transnational investment giants. And that, that pushes Bezos' wealth up rapidly. I mean, his wealth went up over 50% in just the last decade. So it made him the richest person in the world, but he's, he's just benefited from what were um, you know, economic investments that spiraled the, the, the wealth of, of Amazon and their stock value. Peter, how many of these entities are American and how many of these corporations are American as well? Well, the giant, the 17 giants, about half are U.S.-based companies. Uh, but most of them, all of them have international people on their boards of directors. So uh, the big giants are, are invested everywhere in the world and, um, but have, still have more capital than they can use and want to see the ability to invest more, more broadly, that part of the Trump policies with China right now is allowing um, capital investment in Chinese companies in excess of half, in excess of 50%, because the Chinese have had a limit on that. And so that's one of the negotiating points that's going on right now under this whole tariff fight with the mm -hmm. Chinese. So the, protecting global capital, allowing it to expand and grow everywhere in the world and undermining governments that resist in any way that are trying to protect their people uh, with laws or rules. Um, that's the policy uh, of global capital facilitators. These are the people that are advising the World Trade Organization in that to change rules, change laws, um, implement policies that allow for the continued expansion and growth of capital. The Council of 30 is what I call the Executive Committee of, of um, Capitalism.
this is a private organization. So this is not government. This is not, they're putting out reports that the World Bank will see as instructions and, and follow directly. The, the International Monetary Fund, same thing. And their policy is to expand capital, to see it grow and continue to grow in the world. Nation states are actually population containment zones. <laughs> and the people in, in those, the, the, the governments in there benefit from capitalism. They're often engaged in or invested in, and uh, so a small elite are doing well. But the rest of the, rest of the country is often under tight uh, state police control. Uh, little democracy in, in any real sense. Uh, people get to vote, but their the choices are still which elite do you like the best. And, you know, so that becomes a global governmental policy arrangements. Your book breaks down several components of the transnational capitalist class, how it protects itself and expands this wealth, Peter. You talked about the facilitators, right? You talked about the G30, um, the Trilateral Commission. Why do you think that people have no idea, really, about the think tanks that you're talking about and what role they really have? The facilitator groups are the ones that actually make policy. Policies of international security and uh, defense and military stuff, the, the number one policy group that's non-governmental is the Atlantic Council. The Atlantic Council is made up of NATO nations, representatives from NATO governments, and, and it's, but they're not, they're not necessarily representatives of government. They're high-level um, security people, um, investment people, intermixed, and and uh, and big corporate uh, officials, high-level corporate officials. So, the Atlantic Council um, has a has a large private budget. They're putting out annual reports, and they could put out, could out, put out a report on you know any government, any policy towards or somebody, public or private. So a lot of this is behind the doors of, of what they're making recommendations for. So this, this is a very, these are very powerful, non-governmental policy-making entities. And they know that, and so these policy groups are making, giving you points of view. And to help, to help that along, they hire big public relation firms. Uh, the big three are Omnicom, WPP, and Interpublic Group. And there's <clears throat> several hundred smaller public relation firms under those three that are making, they'll put out press releases for governments, state departments, corporations on various policy issues. And then the corporate media, who we call the ideologists, which are also owned by the giants. I mean, they, they invested in all of them, the, the big six corporate news media in, in, in the world today, um, are <clears throat> pu putting out as news content what these pu public relations firms are preparing for them. So, it, you know, the, what we're hearing in the news today is Venezuela is, you know, a dictatorship and they're destroying the country and they have socialist orientations. And, you know, the, the government there has been elected by two thirds of the people. And, and it's very democratic, but it's also um, challenged by the elites in Venezuela and by U.S. capital elites here. And so the ideologists the media are putting out stories of how terrible how terrible they are, and even Trump is mentioning how they're behind the caravan that's coming up from, uh, you know, Central America, which is just it's ludicrous.
The ideologists are, are a very important component of this, Peter. Uh, we have the Atlantic Council now, now working in concert with Facebook to curate uh, the news there. Um, talk about how problematic that is, as well as just the concept of the ideologist to protect the transnational capitalist class. Because we hear all the time that, you know, these Beltway publications like the Washington Post and New York Times, they're the premier um, arbitrators, you know, of our objective reality, yet they couch all of their opinions in these so-called experts and, and policymakers of the exact same think tanks. So there's massive penetration in that capacity over the last decade. And still, of course, there were Facebook pages that were, um, and, and Twitter accounts that were, were considered too extreme by the Atlantic Council. And those got named and several hundred of them have now been purged. And we'll probably see more purging going on in that capacity as well. Chinese do the same thing. I mean, Google will help them do search engines that'll exclude the kinds of places that they don't want the, the Chinese people to be able to go to see. We're facing the same thing here. It's not gonna be a free and open internet. Let's just talk about the ideologists and their role to protect the transnational capitalist class. Talk about the interlocking of the boards of directorates on the corporate media. Corporate boards of directors are made up of other people that are on other corporate boards. Mm -hmm. And so they're primarily interested in profit and, and capital, making capital. But the deeply penetrating corporate media today, 80% of the stories that are, that are coming from television news stories are packaged or prepared by public relation firms working for government or corporations. So 80%, I mean, that's a study that's been validated. And, and Ben Bakdicki had told me 25 years ago that it was two thirds then. So, I, I mean, I think that this is, we don't recognize the importance of how much news, corporate news, is managed in very deliberate ways to give us certain messages and not allow and not criticize uh, capitalism in any way. Corporate media has a religious understanding that capitalism is wonderful and everything's going to be good. And they keep telling us that over and over again as things get worse and the environment is collapsing and economic catastrophes are happening. You know, the structure of the corporate media, obviously it exists to protect capitalism. That's very obvious, but how exactly is the corporate media also weaponized for empire? I mean, building these false narratives about everything from Venezuela to Iran in this cartoonish way to build that consensus among the American public. Well, they're, they're, they're symbolic of how capital is concentrated. So if we've got, you know, 200 people managing $50 trillion worth of capital, and the ownership, of course, is spread around, but it's the managers. And the ideologists, the big TV stations with, that are putting out news in our faces every day um, are, are the same thing. They have consolidated down and just in, in the last you know, 30 years uh, from 50 major media corporations down to a six. You know, and then, and then you know, the Washington Post is now owned by Bezos. So, you know, I mean, and so they're buying up and or controlling uh, media content worldwide. So it makes your kinds of programs incredibly important. Uh, that we have to have these alternative voices out here really explaining what's going on. And I don't say alternative, I want to say that we're mainstream. <laughs> you are mainstream because you're speaking for the mainstream populations in, in the world. And these are humanitarian values that we hold and these are very important kinds of concepts that we have to continue to express in every way that we can. And we're going to get censored, we're going to get repressed in some capacity. There's been zero coverage of my book on giants, the global power elite in terms of corporate media. And, uh, and if, if I get coverage, I'm sure it'll be negative.
I love that you said that our ideas are mainstream because that's exactly what the corporate media is designed to do, make us feel disempowered, disenfranchised, marginalized. I mean, that's the whole neoliberal doctrine. You know, you're an individual and if you don't just make it on your own and you don't, you know, you don't need anyone to help you, but we do. And we need to, to be communicating this with each other, Peter. Uh, absolutely. So this is my favorite part of your book, uh, The Protectors of the transnational capitalist class. Uh, talk about who they are. Protectors are the are NATO, the U.S. military, the police state, uh, and private military. G4S is the second largest private employer in the world with 625,000 people. Um, the only one bigger is Walmart. So <clears throat> G4S were the people with the dogs up in the Dakotas that were attacking the demonstrators around the pipeline. Um, they do everything from you know, mercenary activities, uh, war-type activities in Africa, South America, to protecting the Israeli uh, settlements from the Palestinians. Uh, they do it all. They guard banks, they run prisons. I mean, they're a massive, you know, private security company. If a company wants to have a green zone, uh, a protection zone in the middle of any, anywhere, um, they'll, they'll do it for them. And, uh, and, they, and they kill people. So, and then of course, Blackwater, which is now um, Academy, um, is the, the other big private military group. And uh, Eric Prince is trying to convince uh, Trump to let him take over the war in Afghanistan. And they have their own private uh, air force in, in Africa. Private security is rapidly growing. International, you know, U.S. military and NATO in particular is all over the world now. Um, and with bases, uh, you know, over a thousand bases, some of these are lily pad bases in every country in Africa that they can go to immediately. They don't necessarily have troops there, but they build them ahead of time. And occupied, you know, we've got troops in 140 countries, literally killing people, training people, killing people. Um, it's to protect capital. It's not to protect you and me, it's to protect capital and have capital penetration in all regions of the world. And if there's any interference and they want to try to do a regime change uh, with governments and so and, and debt collection. So if a country is in debt and, and the military is there to really threaten uh, the government if they're not going to uh, return. So the U.S. military says that this global empire is because of freedom and democracy. You're saying that that's not the case. It's a lie. <laughs> For them, freedom of democracy is a freedom of capital to do business anywhere in the world. And corporations are, are closely linked with what democracy means. You know, it means free enterprise. Uh, it doesn't mean people making decisions at grassroots levels about their lives and passing laws and upwardly mobile stuff and regulating corporations. It means exactly the opposite. As a sociologist, Peter, how do you see the interaction between defense companies and these financial investment firms in profiting off of war? They're closely interconnected. I mean, all these big investment companies are invested in, in war. I mean, they make money from it. Um, you know, the, and that's one of the reasons that, uh, that we're going to, Trump is they're going to still allow the $110 billion purchase from the Saudis from U.S., from Raytheon, and from Lockheed Martin. He for, said it himself. He was just open it, about it. Even though they murdered. <laughs> yeah. um, because it's more important. Money, that's jobs, and it's more important to keep jobs. They always say it's for jobs, but it's, it's for capital pockets and, and uh, capital growth and expansion. Peter, let's talk about an example here. Uh, what about BlackRock and its role in this uh, death machine? 
BlackRock is the largest transnational investment company in the world. This year, they've got $6 trillion worth of assets that they're investing worldwide. They have $50 billion in Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman each. And uh, so they're doing huge amounts of investment and benefiting from war. Um, <clears throat> they benefit from investments in everything. Um, but a lot of military companies are involved. All the, all the CO2 producing companies are involved. Uh, they're just a massive um, capital investment company. They're run by a guy named Larry Fink, who's from L.A., and it's been the most successful. It's not a bank. It's just an investment company, mm -hmm. and it's been the most successful in the world. So it's, it's huge. It's massive, and um, he's the one that uh, he's, he, he was on Trump's advisory board, and he's very active um, in encouraging the privatization of Social Security. Let's give a, a real-life example here of how capital moves in terms of, let's say, war profiteering from one institution to the next. Well, we could do a small example. Mm -hmm. uh, Lockheed Martin builds nice bombs. And that a bomb that blew up the school bus in Yemen and killed 40 children there, uh, they made a profit on that. And that profit was a percentage, a small percentage, but a return that would go back to the big investment giants, even just a few pennies on one bomb, but they're dropping millions of bombs, so it adds up. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's capital benefit. And, and so governments will buy bombs. In this case, it was the Saudis buying a bomb from Lockheed Martin. Lockheed Martin gets to make them, uh, and they make them with investment capital from the transnational giants. And all the returns just go right back up the, back, back up the chain. So when that bomb killed those 40 children, um, investment capital uh, benefited. Do they, do they invest the most in defense contractors at this point? What is their biggest industry of investment? Uh, Silicon Valley. Yeah. Silicon Valley is the biggest. Uh, they're all invested in, in, in Facebook and Amazon and, and, uh, and uh, <coughs> Google and, and, and all of that. So that's the big, the big growth now. That's what's propelled Amazon so, so big and Apple. But, um, but defense and military is right in there. I mean, it's one of the top for all of them. It's the only way that we make money in this country anyway. Well, our we make biggest a lot industry. of money on defense yeah. industry, on, on building weapons. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're supplying two-thirds of the weapons of the world. So it's a, major, it's a major investment. We used to be in competition neck and neck with the Russians, but uh, we beat them. After the Cold War, we really superseded them. Briefly discuss how the corporate media is also subsidized uh, by these very institutions. The, the, the big investors are invested in corporate media. They're also invested in the contractors. So it's, there's clearly an overlap of capital interests that, that are engaged here. So media is wanting to project the ideology that capitalism is good, it's going to be good for all of us, and we just have to continue to grow and it'll trickle down and we'll all be happy. And that's not happening, it's not going to happen, and we're going to destroy the world environmentally in the meantime, and if we don't see economic collapse before. Well, sometimes it's very brazen because you'll be seeing a report on, let's say, MSNBC, and then you'll go to an actual commercial from BP or from Lockheed Martin, as if the public is interested in buying, you know, weapons or, <laughs> or oil. <laughs> that's, that's always amazed me that, that you know, Lockheed Martin <laughs> will, will run ads about how wonderful their weapons are. <laughs> <laughs> 
You mentioned climate change, and this kind of adds a new urgency off of your studies, Peter, and, and how just, I think, 100 companies are responsible for two-thirds of the global emissions. Um, where do you see this going? Where do you see the inequality going and the state that you just talked about if we don't correct global capitalism? Well, it was the first time that the central core, the policy planners, uh, the managers, the facilitators of global capitalism have, have ever been identified in one place at one time. So we have the 300 people that are the most powerful in the world in terms of global capitalism that could in fact make changes. It's gotta be reversed. You've gotta do something to change it. And, um, and we hope that they will, can hear that message before environmental collapse and or major wars and civil unrest occur. I mean, people in big metropolitan areas around the world, if they're starving, they're, they have no resources, there's a state trying to control them, ultimately they're, they're gonna resist mm -hmm. in, in a variety of ways. And, and governments will, you know, people inside will realize there's a problem and resist. So we see resistance movements all over the world. And, um, you know, whether it's Bolivarian movements in South America or workers' movements in China, or what we had Occupy here, another Occupy-type movement occurring, um, that, that all makes them afraid. Peter, I've heard people talk about how uh, the global power elite and, and the notion that you're talking about right now is almost a super organism at this point, that it's an autonomous machine. And that let's say a board of directors just suddenly has a conscience, right? And says, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. They will be quickly replaced. Therefore, the system will just churn on. How do we possibly confront something that is this consolidated, this global? Well, part of writing the book was to identify the, the central core, the 300 people who are vital to the central policy making, facilitating and protection of global capital. Um, there's other thousands that are associated with that, but, but to identify who these players are, and of the 389 people, already two of them have died, and some others are gonna trade places and be replaced, but the structure's there. The idea that these policy groups and this concentrated capital is really managed by these small numbers of people. So we can identify who they are. And, and so we can lobby them, we can pressure them, we can protest to them, and we can stop CO2 gas production. And, and we need to do it immediately and find alternative ways of, of, of surviving on this planet. All right, well this book is definitely an important instrument. Um, and a necessary component in the fight for our survival. Well, and it gives every species. social, every policy, every social movement group, uh, any political groups, uh, an advantage in the sense that these are the people that we have to talk to and, and, and know could do some could do some changing. Thank you so much for your incredible research, Peter, and for sitting down with me today. I really you appreciate your much. time. Good to see you. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for listening to our Empire Files podcast. Help keep us independent and ad-free at patreon.com slash empirefiles. And be sure to catch our newest episodes by subscribing to our YouTube channel.